the way you analyze the game, the way you identify the major players. Oh, it left me breathless. Well, it's, it's just a game. Remember that, kids. Just a game. He's so humble. Don't forget what you wrote in the epilogue. The fate of the world depends on the outcome of this game. Hmm? Well, I was exaggerating a bit, just for effect. The Sock Jig Sneaker Podcast. Bitch better have my money. Welcome to episode 50 of the Sock Jig Sneaker Podcast. I am your host, Sock Jig. You can follow me on Twitter at Sock Jig and on Instagram as well. This is the annual State of the Sneaker Game address, where I talk about the past 12 months in sneakers, the snapshot of where we are right now, and where things are going in the upcoming year. I'll talk about it in terms of brands and collabs, retailers, resellers and sneakerheads, sneaker media and social media, and influencers as well. A disclaimer is, you know, I don't think that I'm actually a president of sneakers and on a soapbox. I'm just a guy with a sneaker podcast. This is an annual podcast. This episode, The State of the Sneaker Game, I started in 2021. The premise actually comes from Conan O'Brien on his old late night show where he did a bit called The State of the Show. And it was usually timed up to be matched with the U.S. President State of the Union. But I always look forward to this episode because I can talk about a lot of different things and kind of summarize the year. Often podcasts are reacting to recent news. This one lets me take a step back and look at the whole year. And over time, I can compare these episodes with previous years. So, you know, I'm kind of doing it for the official sneaker record. And another disclaimer is I'm only really talking about sneakers that sneakerheads are into. That means mostly the hype stuff and the collab stuff. But I'll also talk about some GR kind of stuff because that kind of stuff is unavoidable because what is a GR really does inform what is hype. You can't have quiet without loud. You can't have hype without GRs. But the one thing I'm not going to really talk about is the current you know, market share of a brand, the stock price, their earnings reports, or how many soccer cleats each company sells. That kind of stuff I don't really care about. We can find that kind of information from Matthew Kish, and Lois Akaney on Business Insider. Some topics I may have covered in recent podcast episodes and might be a bit repetitive. So if that's the case, I just talk about it briefly and you can check the previous episodes for more details. So please do me a favor and share this podcast with someone who might be into sneakers either casually or as a collector. They may find it interesting. They may find it fun. They may become a fan or they might find my voice dull. So please share it out. Please send it to someone. And even if you just thought about it for a second and didn't actually do it, I do appreciate the fact that you thought about it. A couple of notes before we start. I recorded the bulk of this episode on Sunday, March 12th, and I do talk about the complex and BuzzFeed story, but I don't talk about the Tom Sachs story that broke today on March 14th. Another warning about this episode is I made a mistake with recording some parts of this episode. I had a wrong setting on the microphone and I didn't notice it till about two hours later. So I went back and tried to clean up that audio. So it might sound a bit tinny and it might sound a bit compressed from the cleanup of the audio. This intro part is clean and fixed and that's usually because I do the intros and the outros at the very end. If anything, you'll kind of notice the order I do in recording and it doesn't always match up to the sequence of the episode. 
And yes, I did record for over two hours. Really, this kind of episode takes me like eight hours of recording and then I edit it down to like one hour. That's because I have a lot of shit to talk about, so let's get to it. Alright, the state of the sneaker game in 2023 is honestly pretty decent. And you may be thinking, what? So, hear me out. Really, sneakers are easier to get than they've ever been in history. There's a lot of nostalgia about the back in my day, I could walk into a store and get it off the shelf, and we need that kind of era back. But really, that era is not coming back. That requires fewer drops, fewer people into sneakers, fewer stores, and more importantly, no Instagram or social media. I just don't see that happening. Ask any sneaker store right now, does Instagram help your business or hurt it? That kind of nostalgia talk about how it was and how it should be always comes back around, but social media and mobile phones changed everything in society, and there's just no going back. And sneakers are generally available, and resale is dead, but, you know, not exactly dead, but deader than it's been in a while, and it kind of mirrors the economy, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But sneakers are generally available. Dunks are sitting now, Panda Dunks are down to whatever it is, 140, 150 instead of 240. There's still hype drops that are hard to get that you have to work at and put your effort in, and they are still difficult. You know, you might be thinking, how can you say sneakers are easy in a good place because I didn't get lost and found ones or white cement threes. But put your personal L to the side for a second. Do you know someone else who got a lost and found or white cement three? Or on your Twitter, did you see other people winning? Did you see waves of L's or did you see waves of people winning? Of course, you saw people winning. You saw, you know, average people winning. And that's what I mean. That's normal in sneakers. You just don't see these waves of L's anymore. You might see it on these unicorn drops, like on a Travis Lowe or something. But those are by design. That's what a unicorn drop is supposed to be. You can't have a hype drop without unicorn drops. There has to be a variety of attainable, normal hype drop, like Lost and Found, something that's semi-hype and ultra-hype, or these unicorns as I've called it. Everything can't be military black fours or lost and found ones. There's this LA3 tweet a while back where he said, you wanted more stock on sneakers because somehow every store backdoors, you got it. You wanted more fair drops, more raffles, you got it. You wanted higher stocks, you got it. You wanted shoes to sit, you got it, shoes are sitting. So what's there left to complain about? But that's the thing, there's always something to complain about, even when sneakers are available for the most part. Because there's always going to be issues A lot of times the complaining is from people who are casually into sneakers and just dive in for the lost and found ones and the white cement threes and then go out. They're not like the rest of us who are in it every drop trying to get a couple a month and have a much better success rate than someone who dips in once or twice a year. The other thing I've been talking about recently and I'll dive in in this episode a bit more is how the previous era for sneakers kind of ended with Virgil passing and then Kanye going Kanye, it really felt like an end of a sneaker era for me. But that just means there's going to be a start of a new era. So what exactly is this new era? What is this next five years going to be? For Nike, maybe it's a reimagined era. Maybe they're putting all their OGs in the Disney vault, and now they're just going to have reimagined versions of them for a while. And maybe they'll transfer that over to Nike releases as well too. For Adidas, they're lost in the German wilderness, They can define for themselves what they want to be, what their post-Yeezy era is going to be. But overall, for every brand, and the kind of theme that I'm talking about in this episode is 
every brand that's releasing sneakers has got to think about what they're releasing and who it's for. Is the sneaker nice? Who is the audience for the sneaker? And is it the time and place for this sneaker? For example, it's a great call by Nike to say, hey, Vomero 5 fits the trends that we are in right now. So let's bring that back. This is a 2010 shoe. We brought it back a couple of years ago. Let's bring it back again now. They either know what's trendy and what's out there or are setting the trends themselves. But they also have a library of silhouettes that they can look through and bring back and are creating new ones to, you know, keep enhancing their library. But every brand should be working to build a library of silhouettes. And they all, of course, have that, but are they ones that people want to wear right now? But for everyone else, the question is, as always, who are you in footwear in the face of a Goliath like Nike? In, you know, the traditional David and Goliath story, nobody really roots for Goliath. They root for the underdog David. But here, people root for Nike. They root for Goliath. And that's because Nike's earned it. They've built the trust of people and never truly lost it. That's because they make product that's nice, they make product that people want, and they have a library and archive of silhouettes that are hits that they can choose from. But that's because Nike is constantly renewing its relationship with sneakerheads. Sure, they fuck it up sometimes with sneaker apps problems, or say, you know, a sneaker with a good story, but the marketing or release was botched or whatever it is. But for the most part, they get it right. And it's something other brands aren't doing or they're trying and they're just not doing it at Nike's level, which is hard to match. So that's the challenge for every sneaker brand right now is define your next five years, define what your era is gonna be. You need the right products and the right team to build it. But sometimes stuff is out of your hands, like the state of the economy. So I'll talk a little bit about that next. In terms of the economy and where sneakers are at, you know, the sneaker market is gonna mirror the economy. I will say upfront that I'm not a market analyst type of guy. I have a comp sci degree, not an economics degree. Everyone knows someone who's like the market is going to crash guy or is a market expert or uses words like stagflation and shit like that. But that's not me when it comes to the general market and economy and if we're in a recession or not a recession or what's going to happen at the end of the year. You know, I know some basics like supply and command. So here's my basic understanding of it. So prices are going up, that's inflation. Inflation means higher costs, which means the cost of necessities are higher. And therefore there's less money to spend on things that we want because more of it is going to things that we need, like food, shelter, transportation, all that kind of stuff. So when it comes to sneakers, for a regular person, this might mean, you know, I'm buying cheaper sneakers like Skechers instead of what's on the Foot Locker wall. But for sneaker heads or collectors, it's a bit different. It's like, are you really going to pass up the white cement threes for 210 because they used to be 190? Not really. Maybe it's, I'm only going to buy the one if I can get it. And before you would have tried for two. But what happens with these higher prices of sneakers across the board is it more affects the middle class of sneakers. And what I mean by the middle class of sneakers is this doesn't mean the GRs or stuff that's on the Foot Locker wall. And it doesn't mean the hype collabs like Amal Manier and stuff like that. It means all those sneakers in between that a sneakerhead wants to buy. And these affect those sneakers that are in that, you know, 150 to 180 range. If an Air Max one that you really like, a suede one or something, used to be 140 or whatever, but is now 180 or 160, maybe I don't need this Air Max one anymore. These Silver Bullet Air Max 97s or the gold ones that we released recently, 
they're all sitting because, well, one, they, you know, retroed just like four or five years ago. So maybe I don't need to buy it again because my last one is doing fine. Or maybe we can see that it's sitting maybe in 2021 when they were deciding on the stock of the sneaker. They thought it was going to be flying, so they made too many. Whatever it is, what happens is that middle class, that $160 to $190 sneaker is the stuff that a sneakerhead will then have second thoughts on buying. And we're seeing this not just in sneakers, but also in other industries too. And Hollywood is a good example. In Hollywood, and especially theater movies, the middle class of movies are basically gone. That includes like, you know, dramas and comedies, because those have all been replaced with either Marvel action movies or some sort of small indie movie that was made on a budget that is, you know, somebody's passion project. A movie like, you know, Dude, Where's My Car or American Pie or something is not going to go to the theaters now. It's going to go to Netflix. And that has to do with the current economics of theater owners and studios and who has a cut of what and ticket prices and where it's worth putting your money into. We see the same thing in streaming services where it's just cheaper for Warner Brothers Discovery to just cancel this Batgirl movie than release it even though it's done because that lower number will look better on a balance sheet somewhere. But back to sneakers and the general economy, uh, the question is, what if this great reset has already happened and we're on our way up? Unemployment is low, housing is on the rebound, but, you know, Silicon Valley Bank just went under and Coinbase and all this shitcoin stuff is going on. So, like, I don't know. It's going to get worse or better. I don't know. Really, no one can accurately call it because if we could, we'd all be billionaires and we're not. But when it comes to sneakers and sneaker heads, Nostalgia still sells, those white cement threes still sold, sneakers still sell, so sneakers will still resell, and that will keep going. Nas said it best in New York State of Mind, I'm an addict for sneakers, and that's not going to stop. I will talk about each brand coming up, but first I want to talk about the state of collapse overall. And as I've said in previous podcasts, I feel like we need new collaborators. We're in a new era So who are the collaborators you want to go forward in this new era with? I'm personally tired of the Ambush and the MMW and even the Sean Witherspoons. I'm just kind of done with them all. How many tries do they get? Most of them got one hit sneaker, maybe another half of a hit. That's enough for me. Let's get some new people in, some new people with new ideas, a new point of view. And from what I've heard and people have said, they're coming. Apparently there are new collaborators coming in Q3 and Q4. But we're seeing it a bit recently. You saw this uh, Cortez drop in the UK. And he's a guy, he's kind of like the British FTP. He's got a following there and got his first shoe. So more of that, more new brands, more new streetwear, people from entertainment. I'd love to see a Frank Ocean Nike collab. But what we've seen more recently has been more luxury collabs. We saw this with the Tiffany drop and... The thing about the Tiffany drop was it seemed like almost an answer for the Louis Vuitton Air Force Ones and the Dior stuff where those were either ultra limited or semi limited. And then so they were like, let's make one that's accessible and accessible and luxury. I don't know. Personally, to me, don't go hand in hand, but the people liked it. The shoe on the market, especially barely budged, even though whatever 37K dropped on sneakers app. And we saw the release basically go everywhere. Some random stores, stores I do not associate with luxury, were getting them. If a lot of stores have it and 
each door only gets like a size run or two. The metaphor I always use is imagine having a little tiny pat of butter and then you got to use that to scrape it on the entire piece of toast. And that's what the Tiffany Air Force One was. So I'm assuming we'll see more of this luxury stuff. When it comes to luxury, there's very few independent brands and most of them are bought up by these big conglomerates like LVMH. And LVMH does have this sort of relationship with Nike, it seems, but we did see Pharrell going to LV, so maybe that'll, you know, kickstart something Adidas-related. But we've already seen these luxury collabs with Gucci, Prada, Louis Vuitton, Dior, as I mentioned. Who else is left? Versace, Hermes, Chanel, Fendi, Burberry, Kenzo. I don't know, do any of those sound exciting? Maybe in a certain way it could be, but I could see them partnering in luxury brands from other industries like we saw with Tiffany and Jewelry, maybe with like Rolex or Van Cleef or, you know, car companies again. But we've seen that with Porsche or Ferrari or whatever. But whatever it is, these brands, they're looking for their next big franchise rock. You know, Nike had Off-White for the previous era, and we have a new era now with no Off-White. I don't know if they'll same, do the same thing with the butter on toast and just spread it over the next four or five years, or if they will all end it in a year or two. If it was me, I would extend it out for a couple of years and end it with the bread four off-white. But for the state of collabs and their silhouettes in general, they need more than just their big franchise rock. There's this productivity metaphor I've heard in a corporate setting, and I will be the business guy and apply it here and try not to be corny about it. Basically, if you were to fill a jar with rocks and each jar represented sneakers, for example, you would want to fill it with these big rocks first. And then you would want the rest to be filled in with little rocks, then tiny pebbles, and then finally sand. And then you would completely fill the jar up instead of just having a bunch of loose rocks in there. So uh, to apply that metaphor to sneakers, it's like, what are your big franchise rocks? Of course, it's these big GRs like Air Force One or Panda Dunks and the Air Max 270 kind of stuff. But in terms of collabs, it's stuff like Travis, Off-White, Tom Sachs. So then what are the smaller rocks? What are those collabs? What are the tiny pebbles? You need these big rocks to help fill the jar, but you also need a lot of little rocks, a lot of pebbles, and a lot of sand too. And across the board, it's got to be stuff that is good, that people care about, that people want to wear. I'll go into each of the brands, what I think about them, their key silhouettes, what are they going to do going forward, and some of their collaborators as well. For Nike, one of the first questions is, what's their next silhouette after the Dunk Low? And I don't know. Maybe it's back to Air Force One. Air Max One doesn't seem like it is. Maybe it's a Jordan One Low. Whatever it is, it'll be a low for sure. Another issue with Nike is higher stock leads to lower quality. And that's just the nature of the game. When you have to have a lot of stock, you have to have lots of factories. One factory might have smooth leather. One might have tumbled leather and they all get mixed up and sent out to consumers. As I said in the intro, if you want sneakers to be accessible, this is just what happens. And we've seen stories that there will be less stock in Q3 and Q4 because a lot of the sneakers that we saw now were decided upon 18 to 24 months ago. So as a response to market conditions and just overall saturation of sneakers, it makes sense to then pull back. And then in the future, once it recovers, can go back to higher stock. Some other stuff from Nike is this lawsuit stuff. We saw the lawsuits with StockX and then also with Cool Key. And it seemed like Bape is their final boss battle that they want to do. I don't know. I just hope they all end it soon. It just 
all a bunch of nonsense to me. This dot swoosh thing, this NFT thing, I could see this totally being de-emphasized in 2023. But as I said previously, when you pay, you play. So if they paid $1 billion, they got to do something with it because otherwise it's admitting they made a mistake. They can push it. I'm not sure it's going to be the future that we all thought we'd have to do where you'd have to buy a Nike NFT worth $5,000 in order to buy sneakers in the future. But overall for Nike and their silhouettes that they're pushing right now, their Dornbecker collection usually tells you what they have on the agenda for the year. You know, notable this year with the addition of the Volmero 5 and foam posits, but they also have like the Air Max 90s, the Hirachi, Jordan 1 Low, and Prestos. Nike's usual formula is to have, you know, what we're going to push this year, have your money makers in terms of like Dunks and Air Force Ones, have a random retro that pleases the, the collectors, the Kukini or the Terminator, or whatever, then go for a new silhouette that targets the people that go to the gym or go for walks, the Foot Locker wall stuff, the Air Max 270 people. What Nike is missing is a hit slide. It seems like they're trying, but overall they haven't hit that thing that uh, Yeezy had with slides. But otherwise, Nike has a good collection. They know what they're doing. They have a library of silhouettes that people care about and want to wear. For Jordan brand and their silhouettes, the most notable thing is how Jordan 4s have replaced Jordan 1s. But really, that's just setting up for 1s to come back later. It's not like Jordan 1s have gone anywhere, but it's kind of a good thing, I think, to kind of put it on the back shelf for a bit. Let something else have some shine. There's also 2s and 3s. There's just way too many 2s, and it seems like they just made a ton to make a ton, and then barely released 2s for the next 10 years. So if you like 2s, enjoy them while you can. For collaborators, the main collaborators with Jordan Brand are Travis, Ama Monier, and Union. So in terms of when I talked about collaborators I'm sick of, these three I'm not sick of. You know, they've had some hits or misses, I guess, but more hits than misses, and definitely have more than two hits. So that is a pretty good batting average. But overall, I think Jordan has done a really good job at giving people what they want. I know their release schedule leaks and it shows everything that's coming out in the next like year and a half or so. I'm personally fine with it. I'm not like, you know, this is ruining the brand storytelling. I've talked about this. There is no storytelling these days. They're barely bothering with storytelling. Around the way girl ones become denim ones. That story was stripped out. So what are we exactly missing? I think Jordan does a really good job with women's releases as well too. And that's one of the things where Jordan brand acts like a good market leader, you know, setting the stage for better women's releases because the other brands aren't exactly pushing it well either. If they were, it'd be something that they could challenge the big leader at, but right now they're not. The other thing with Jordan is this whole reimagined program. It's giving people OGs while protecting OGs. If anything, I don't think we'll see a regular, say, Jordan 1, Chicago 1, or a Jordan Shadow 1 for five or six years. All the OGs are being protected. They're being put in the Disney vault. And by the time this reimagined program is done, there will be really high demand for the regular OG version. So it's really smart, I think, on their part. For Nike SB, it's been kind of a disappointing run of Dunk SBs. There's been some good ones like the Concepts Lobsters or Dodgers. Some of these like fruit and vegetable packs, I don't really care for, but you know, if you like a pineapple dunk, you like a pineapple dunk. But compared to like the 2021 run that we had with the 
the Mummy, Para, the Paul Rodriguez, what the, the Jordan Packs, you know, a lot of hits in that year. So this year for Dunk SBs, you need a couple hitters, maybe two or three. The Supreme one is okay, but I can totally see where people might not like that one. But the real hitter for SB is the Jordan 4. And this is an SB made for the hype beast, not for the skaters, really. The $225 price point tells you that. Most skate shoes are really like $120 max, but that's what this whole energy program is about. It's about having these big franchise rocks, like as I called it, or energy for SB itself, and then have other hits around it. Otherwise for SB, the thing that I want to see is just keep it weird, keep the mystery. I really like that these Jordan 4s did not leak to really late. You know, I just said I don't care if something is leaked, but I do like that SB has their own kind of mystique and aura about it. And that's kind of been one of their original goals from the get-go. Next up is Adidas. And really the main question I have for Adidas is, what is their identity? What does Adidas want to do? What kind of sneakers do they want you to wear? Is it this European-based identity of, you know, trainers and soccers and flat shoes? And what is their North American identity? Previously, Kanye and Yeezys gave them one, on the, especially on the hype side. But that was not exactly, you know, Adidas's identity. That was Kanye's identity. So what exactly do they want to say or do in North America? You know, if they don't know, why would consumers know? Or how would consumers know? Why would consumers even care? To me, they've always had an identity crisis. And that's been kind of their only constant. It's this battle of Germany headquarters versus North America. Who's calling the shots? And who wants to try to establish trends that people want to buy and wear. Often it's the CEO, and we saw that with Nike, especially with Mark Parker, but even Nike now has like a numbers guy as a CEO because they're so big that they can do that. And Adidas has a new CEO too, and he's the ex-Puma CEO. So who is he and what is he doing there? Like, is he a numbers guy who's like a networker or facilitator? Or is he the face of the company, setting direction, making key strategic decision, a kind of a, a visionary leader? But the fact that they got him from Puma tells you all that you need to know. They went to Puma and said, yes, this man who has led Puma is our guy. He is a visionary. Just look at what he did. He put Puma on the map. Or did they go, we need a numbers guy who can speak German. Again, I'm not a market analyst or a business analyst. I don't know exactly what his skill set is, but the hiring of an ex-Puma CEO was still telling to me. In terms of Adidas' silhouettes, right now they're pushing Sambas and Gazelles and maybe Campus. They have slides still. One thing that Adidas does right is slides, and their comfort slides are really good, but they lost the hype slides market with the easy stuff. Something that Adidas does really well is actually skateboarding with their collabs with Gons and Palace and you know Dill and Tyshawn and Nora and all these people. But it's like this tiny thing that they barely push or promote, like compared to how Nike does with SB. But as I said in the intro, like, do they have a library of silhouettes that people care about? Answer is yes. They've been around a long time. So of course people love Stan Smiths or Sambas and stuff. But at a sneakerhead hype level, right now, the answer is no. When you look at the state of Adidas collaborators, the first question is, where's Jerry? It's like GNR, where's Izzy? Where's Jerry? He missed the start of the NBA season. He missed the kind of halfway mark of the All-Star game. And apparently it's coming out in April. 
And I don't know if it's one and done. He's on his Instagram covering up his three stripes tattoo. Or if he'll be an integral part of Adidas going forward. I don't know. Show me what you got. We're all waiting. Adidas also has Bad Bunny, Beyonce, Pharrell, Wales Bonner. And either they're doing something a little bit with them or they're spending too much money with them. Or not enough when it comes to people like Bad Bunny. I saw that Korn is going to have an Adidas collab. And what's funny is I see this kind of new metal renaissance. Maybe it's just me. I saw Deftones had a collab with Mark Jacobs recently. I see this crazy ass moments in new metal history Twitter account retweeted on my account recently. So the new metal renaissance is coming soon. And I guess Adidas is getting on the wave with Korn. But that brings us to Yeezys and what they're going to do with their millions of unsold inventory of Yeezys. As I said about the rumors that they're working together to kind of have a partnership, whatever it is, I don't believe it. I don't think it's happening. It makes no sense at all. But as Bill Simmons describes, there's this Tyson zone when it comes to some people, meaning you will believe any story about Mike Tyson. And the same thing goes with Kanye right now. Any story with Kanye is sort of believable. Oh, he showed up at the campus and posted a photo of him with the new CEO. I can see that happening. Oh, he made a sample of a shoe with a swastika on it. I can totally see that happening. But, you know, imagine Kanye taking a phone call right now. I just don't see it happening. I don't believe he has a team around him. I saw a story that his lawyers were trying to send him notice that they're letting him go as a client and couldn't even reach him. So then who's talking to Adidas about a deal? I don't know. As I said, if they did it, it'd be a lot of loss of trust. And I talked about in the last episode that trust is kind of the most important thing when it comes to business. So if your customers do not trust you and how you move and act and who you deal with, why would they want to spend any money with you? And about these deal rumors, you know, first it was reported by a secret sauce cook group, then some alt-right guy, then more and more people were adding it on. Then publications like Sneaker Freaker and Hypebeast started reporting on it. I honestly thought it was a bad idea that these people were giving credibility without properly sourcing it. I talked to the guy who is part of Secret Sauce Group and Twitter, and he was really, you know, believed it. He says, you don't believe me, you don't have to believe me. This is happening, and this is what I know, and it's what's going on. And I basically said, if you believe it and that's what you heard, that's fine. You can say that. The issue is... If you don't have a history or credibility of putting this kind of stuff out, and this is your first story that you've put out publicly, then people are naturally going to be skeptical. And that's what I am, and that's what a lot of people are. But publications like these Sneaker Freaker and others ran with it. And even Complex legitimized it. And on their Complex podcast, they talked about it. I tweeted about it briefly, and I was talking about how every source is basically trust me bro on it. But Complex really did legitimize it. And I didn't feel like having a feud with Complex online on Twitter about it. So I just left it. And I just thought, I'll save you for the podcast. So that's what this is. On their Complex podcast, Brendan Dunn said a couple people hit him up and said, yes, Adidas has been trying to figure out a way to do Yeezys with Kanye again. Then they went on to talk about how they were skeptical and their own personal opinions about it. When he said that line that a couple of people hit him up and said, yes, they've been trying to figure out a way to do it, it did not specify any details. It did not specify if the sources are credible, but they didn't have proof, or he didn't specify if the sources were not credible and it was not even worth looking into. It was open for you to interpret it. But by saying it this way, it basically backs up the random sources that Complex has heard something too. So Complex has now legitimized the story of 
secret sauce cook group because they too have heard it. This is just an incorrect way on how to report rumors. And if you want to know how to report rumors, just watch how Woj or Brian Windhorst handle the same thing when it comes to NBA and trade deadlines and stories that they've heard but can't exactly report or say. They don't ignore these kind of things completely. They will talk about it. They'll say, here are the rumors. Here's what I heard. Here's their credibility. They're credible people that I trust. But I could not confirm it and neither could they. Basically, the answer is you show your cards. So on my Twitter, I had posted that little clip of Dunsing. A couple of people had hit him up and he eventually replied. I guess someone showed him the tweet and he said that it was credible people, but that he's so skeptical. And he said, I haven't looked into it further, but don't really have anything interesting or solid enough to publish. Basically, that line is what I was looking for in their podcast. And so they did not say that on the first time they talked about it. But then on the podcast later that they did on March 3rd, they went into these kind of details. But enough of them. Back to Yeezys and what Adidas should do. The earnings call with the CEO kind of put it out there that they don't have anything in place. They talked about selling it, destroying it, or giving it to charity. In terms of selling, he talked about the kind of trust stuff that I talked about, that what he called a reputational risk, that if they sold it, people will assume that they're working with Kanye again and they have a deal in place with them again. If they burn it or destroy it, there's a sustainability issue is what they said. Or if they sold it at cost to a right buyer, they could then give that money to charity. For the sustainability and charity stuff, I don't believe it. That's just him trying to sound good. That's just corporate lying right there. There's this writer story about Dow Inc. How they had promised that they were going to recycle sneakers and make them into material that used in playgrounds in Singapore. So Reuters put some trackers in these sneakers. Then they found all these sneakers either in a landfill or in markets in Indonesia. But that's a company, Dow Inc., that had a full-on press release and everything about what they were going to do, but not what they actually did. So same thing with Adidas here. I'll believe it when they actually do something with it. So in terms of selling it, he talked about how he's got 500 different proposals on what to do with it. And what that means to me is that's, you know, the, the third party people coming in, give it to us, we'll get rid of it. But they're in kind of this conundrum because they can't exactly acknowledge that they're going to sell it to third party or gray market to offload it to a bunch of resellers on Twitter. Because once those hit the market, it'll become obvious that they were the only people who had it. Whereas now, if something is backdoored, it can happen anywhere from warehouses to the store to in transit in between. If that were to happen with these easies, all signs would point to Adidas themselves. And that's where the source was. That's why they don't know what to do with it. So it was clear to me that there's no deal in the works. But as I said, the, the Tyson zone with Kanye, I thought it was very telling that he did, you know, give Kanye a compliment as someone who's very creative. Kanye is gone, but he's still putting him over. There's these reports from Rolling Stone that Adidas was looking the other way when it came to Kanye harassing employees. He didn't talk about that. He's not anything talking about that as an indictment on yourself. He's not going to talk about the wrong stuff that they did. Instead, he kind of put out an olive branch that Kanye is very creative. But if they're waiting on an apology tour from Kanye so that they can release these sneakers, that's not coming. For New Balance, they really seem to have two types of collaborators. There are the cool guys like Joe Freshgoods and Action Bronson. Then the rest are these nebbish fashion mood board nerds like Jound or ALD or Slehi or whatever. But 
overall, it's a pretty good collection of collaborators. It's a good mix. It's well curated. For silhouettes, they still have their 990 series. They have a 990 V6 out. They have these new 610s out, 9060, 1906R. So they are still going out there and making new stuff. And, you know, maybe they're not huge hits like, say, the 2002R was, but they're at least trying something. That 2002R became kind of a mainstay and... You know, the formula is have some hype collabs, then have lots of GRs, and then go down market with different materials and patterns and stuff like that. So, seems like a success. They're pushing a lot of these budget sneakers that they have, like the 574 or the 580. You know, to me, Stone Island and 574 seems like a bad idea. And the 580, I know it had like this more, it was this huge cult hit. But then when it came to North America, it was in like the outlets. I don't think you can recreate it, but they'll probably try some other stuff that they've had has lost a bit of luster recently, the 550 especially. This protection pack, I think they did overdid it a little bit. Even the ALDs, you know, either they were like a pre-order and it didn't ship, or they were just like generic, like who wants an ALD 650 high or whatever it was. The other thing they did in the last year was all these Teddy Santis GRs. To me, it was way too many, but I don't know if it was a success or if it was a mistake. Did they screw it up by having too many? Or was it... A huge hit and they made a ton of money off it i don't know but i don't care about any of them and that's like 48 sneakers that i'm talking about but overall new balance is doing really well their plan this year seems to be just to increase production focus on growth do more of the same they can do releases better the keywit stuff that they have on their site is not that good at all maybe they'll switch to eql or something i don't know they just can't overdo it though they want to grow but they can't overdo it like adidas did with nmds just, you know, have a picture of NMDs on your wall to remind you. Don't get too much dip on your chip, Teddy. New Balance should just try to be New Balance, not try to be anyone else. I saw this overly distressed Golden Goose type sneaker that they made, and it's like, why is that on there? Why is that shoe made? That's not New Balance being New Balance. That's New Balance trying to get a Golden Goose buyer. But my challenge for New Balance in terms of hype sneakers is to make a sneaker of the year. Something that's fire, accessible, a good release. Closest they got was the Joe Freshka's 992. For all the other brands, the main question is, who is the sneaker for? Do the people want to buy this sneaker? Are you building a library of silhouettes that people want to wear or associate with your brand? And I want to talk about these other kind of brands, these challengers to Nike in a future podcast, but... The challengers are brands like Asics, Solomon, Hoka, Reebok, Puma. What are they doing? Asics, I think they had a really good year. Gel Kano 14 is really good. They seem to have made the right hires and focused on the right silhouettes for now. Solomon, they've been having a moment or two with XT6. Again, to me, some of those sneakers look exactly the same, but it's definitely something. Hoka, I don't know. It seems to be replacing the Air Monarch and... You know, they do a couple of collabs here and there with, say, Engineered Garments or whoever. Reebok, I have no clue what they're doing over there with their new ownership. For Puma, I have to retire my annual bit I used to do on this podcast where I talk about everything exciting about Puma and then be silent for 10 seconds. It just wouldn't be fair to do that right now because they at least have one thing going right now, which is the mellow basketball shoe. I know they have a Rihanna Fenty shoe coming out and I don't know how that will do. But it's definitely something. Luxury brands I talked a little bit about in terms of collabs with Nike and stuff. But a lot of them have their own shoes. And a lot of it is just like stuff that looks like knockoff Nike anyways. 
Louis Vuitton actually has some decent sneakers that I would wear, like their trainers or the runner tactic, especially the green ones that the rappers were wearing. Independent brands have been out there. A lot of independent designers have been making their own shoes with vibrant soles and stuff like that. People like Mosh and others. I don't know. I think it's a great idea. If you have an audience and you think they will buy it, go ahead. But I don't see it as some sort of trend that will take on big companies or anything like that. The fun knockoff brands of making Dunks and Jordan 1s, you know, if they haven't been sued, maybe they still are making them that are changed a bit. For that, again, just be smart about it and don't do it at scale. Another thing that people talk about recently is fakes and how oh, fakes are a huge trend on TikTok and they're coming back and they're taking over. I personally don't see it. And every generation has to learn the lessons that the previous generation already learned. So go make your dumb mistakes. Go buy these fakes if you want to buy fakes. To me, this is all just insecurity. If something in your brain says, I need this, it's important to me to have fake Travis Frags, and I don't give a shit about whatever way that people excuse it. What about this kid who can't afford it? What about him? Like I said before, fuck that kid. Fuck all those people. I think it's all bullshit. I've always said it's like peeing the pool to me. You have one fake, you've peed in the pool, it's tainted your whole collection. And as I said, every generation has to learn this lesson. These dumb youth are thinking about the now. And no one's going to grow up and grow old and say, man, I'm so glad I wore a whole bunch of fake shit when I was younger. If they do, they're a fucking idiot. For retailers and stores, there's still going to be an emphasis on raffles. We saw Nike talk about this on their high heat memo, which I'll get to. And that just means more raffles, so... We saw that there's a new player in the game in terms of EQL getting to more and more North American stores. And as I talked about it with JML on the podcast interview, it seemed like a thing that Shopify did not want to get into. It's not worth their time. So that gave rise to EQL. I'm not exactly sure of their business plan. I'm not sure if it's a monthly fee or if it is a percentage on per transaction. I do know on their FAQ that they have a uh, EQL fee that they pass on to the user and most likely as I was talking about this on Twitter that is something that the retailer themselves did not want to pay so they pass that cost on to the user but I understand why retailers may not want to pay this fee because to them what is it it'd be just easier and cheaper and you'd make more money if you just throw it all online to bots or backdoor or whatever so as I've been talking about trust it's more a question about how important trust is for that store how important the rep of the store is. If a store is small and has a rep of always backdooring, customers are not going to feel any loyalty towards them. But if it's a store where you enter and you win and you felt like it was fair, maybe you will get a sense of loyalty towards it. Really, I think it would be great if they just did a more focus on first come first serve, whether that's online in a bot protected way or if that's in store. But as we saw with this Nike memo that was leaked to Complex, which was a fake leak, by the way. It was sent to their media-friendly outlets because they would print it for them. Just like how the details of the secret sneakers app meeting was leaked, but no other meeting has ever been leaked ever since then. So that memo said that all high heat releases must be raffles. They have to be fair. They have to release at the same time as we do. They can't have a purchase element. There can't be any charity drops. The question is, you know, what's considered high heat? Is Travis and Tiffany high heat? Yeah, that's obvious. What about lost and found ones or military fours or these white cement threes? There's a, a ton of those pairs. Even with Travis, 
a Travis Jordan 1, of course, high heat. These Travis Air Trainer 1s that kind of sat, would those be considered high heat and they have to raffle and they had a ton of stock on? I don't know. My initial reaction was that this is just office nerds making memos. An office nerd in Portland can write all the memos that they want. It just gives them an outline to kind of keep tabs on stores to make sure that they are following their rules. And they can do that by just checking their Instagram. Most stores were not doing first come first serve for Travis one Jordan ones anyways. So most of these rules stores are already following. So if anything, this is all that is. It gives them a way to kind of penalize stores that are openly flaunting their policies. Some other brief notes on retailers in the last year or so. I saw that there's a lot less acquisitions and that's because of the economy and no one's got cash on hand and interest rates are high. There's also been this de-emphasis on direct-to-consumer across all brands, not just Nike. And that's coming from market analyst Lois Sakani, who mentioned this. We saw that Foot Locker was getting less stock previously and had announced that they were going to start getting more Adidas. But even that, I think, has been de-emphasized. It is getting more and more Nike stock again. But I would still advise all these stores to not be reliant on Nike Think about life without Nike. Sure, this DTC stuff has been de-emphasized, but still, what would you do and what would your numbers look like if you had no Nike product? And that is the big gaping hole that Yeezy's filled, and that is gone too. If I was a store, I'd be putting pressure on my Adidas reps to give us product that we can sell that consumers want to buy. That might be just talking to a brick wall, but at least you're telling someone something about the product that you're selling. And they can go tell someone, and they can go tell someone, and then maybe you'll be translated to the ex-Puma CEO. Next up, I want to talk about reselling and where it's at. And as I said, how there's no middle class of sneakers anymore, that affects reselling especially. There's no sneakers that are easy $20 flips anymore. You know, The Last Dance had us making $20 minimum on any Jordan GR, and those days are over. So it's more of a casual versus professional reseller. There's people that do this as kind of a full-time hustle, whereas some people who just casually flip the lost and found one that they want on sneakers. So the number of people who were doing this seriously or professionally, a lot of them got out of it because what is there to resell? It's a great time to get out, find a job, because it just wasn't sustainable anymore. There's no consistent profits. Botting was down. There's not enough inventory or stock so to anyone who is still doing it this year will test you you got to find out who you are the easiest way to summarize it is be inventory light and cash heavy i would not be holding pairs it'd be a great time to actually hold fire red threes or white cement threes but who's got the capital to invest in that right now so i wouldn't do it and cut groups are still around they kind of cater to the kind of semi-casual semi-professional reseller a lot of them had diversified into other fields, getting into vinyl or sports betting or Amazon FBA. The pros of a cook group is you learn a lot about stuff that flips and tips of things that were not necessarily on your radar. Like if you didn't know the Fallout Boy vinyl flips and you bought it and bought it, now you got Fallout Boy vinyl that you're reselling. The downsides of a cook group is you never learn these things on your own. You're always reliant on other people to kind of tell you, and now you're competing with those same people to resell that same product. So you can take what you learned there, go apply it, go start finding video games at garage sales or whatever. 
consignment stores I've been talking about recently too. They've been shutting down, as I said previously, great in a boom period to consign your sneakers, not in a down period. We've seen this kind of Zeta effect on consignment stores. Maybe they were over leveraged. Maybe it was just bad bookkeeping and they were using money that not exactly theirs. If people can't trust those places, then they'll only trust the flight clubs and stadium goods. And those places are making it kind of easier to consign, but then that also leads to more competition and more undercutting. In terms of botting, botting pretty much still a thing. I saw on Shopify, on the Jound release, a lot of those kind of questions where it's on the cart page can be bypassed by, by bots. There just hasn't been a consistent number of these types of releases. If anything, sneakers app botting is still live and active. And from what I can tell, it doesn't even matter about the bots. It seems like most of them are working, which means that it's more about your account and the credit card and the address associated with it. So if you can get five or six of those, and then you can plug that into your one bot, it's account dependent and not bot dependent. So even though the market is down and botting is down, there's still going to be the boogeyman. Overall, all I'll say is reselling will never die. There's been companies or people who have said that they're going to kill resell and kill StockX and things like that. And they didn't do any of that. If anything, they're laying off people and dying a pathetic death right now because it can't be killed. There's always going to be someone who wants a sneaker who either missed out or didn't want to put in the time or effort to get it. And they'll be the ones who want it right now from a consignment type of store or they want it for $50 cheaper from StockX. That will never stop. So you just got to adapt and start flipping Fallout Boy vinyl. For sneaker influencers and content creators in sneakers, my question is, what is your point of view? What are you trying to say that's interesting or stands out? And then to who? Who is this for? Who is the audience? Is it general sneakerheads? Is it YouTube searchers? What do you want from the content that you create? Is it for the love of the game or is it for chasing these brand and sponsorship deals? A lot of that stuff, when I hear about that, it feels to me like a dog chasing a car. What are you going to do when you actually get it? Are you going to chase another car? Once you're in the door, are you then a spokesman for that brand? Are you Ryan Seacrest hosting shows and not exactly sharing your own opinion? Just, you know, kind of look the part like a Price is Right model? Or is it separate from that? It's getting paid to share your thoughts and opinions, like having a show that people want to see. And who's going to do that? Who's going to pay you to do that? Complex? Not exactly. They pay exactly four people to do that and no one else for years. So they're not going to elevate anyone. No one is going to pluck you out and give you a show. So if you want to create content on thoughts and opinions, you better already be doing it and doing it for the love of the game. So whatever it is, however you want to be noticed, be authentic, be interesting, have a point of view. Or if you want to be a Barker's beauty, be light-skinned and pretty and live in LA or New York City. Next up, I want to talk about sneaker media. This includes social media, but also includes these networks like Complex and Nice Kicks and all that kind of stuff. But first, a story that broke over the weekend was how many of the big sneaker YouTubers were secretly in a partnership with Complex for years, since 2014, apparently. This includes people like Hess Kicks, Jacques Cousteau, Tony, D2Wild, Mike Compass, some other ones, I guess, too. 
so apparently since January, they have stopped paying all these sneaker YouTubers. And BuzzFeed is the parent company that owns Complex. And I guess they acquired Complex back in like 2021 or so, but maybe the merger didn't happen until recently. And that might explain why there were layoffs recently, where maybe duplicate roles were laid off. I don't know. But overall, BuzzFeed is tightening the belt, but I don't think they're actually going bankrupt or anything. Heskix was the first one to publicly tweet about it, and then Sneaker Fetish on his Twitter talked about it a little bit more in detail as well, too, talking about how Complex has something called a multi-channel network for ad sales, and this started back in 2014. So the nature of the deal seems to be mostly about ad sales. It doesn't seem like it was a, a partnership, a co-promotion, free sneakers, no exposure or featuring these YouTubers on their platform or anything. I've talked about Complex, how they only promote themselves. They've literally never elevated anyone else. So I think Tony D too well tweeted that the only benefit he got was Complex Con tickets every year. So when it comes to ads, it's not really a 360 deal. I'm making 360 deal as a joke, but it's more about the ads. And I guess the premise is the YouTuber owns the content. Complex takes care of the ads and pays them out. And the idea is Complex has, say, an ad team or sales team or whatever, and they can get more targeted ads for sneaker content than a shoe tuber could on their own. So if they have like this famed team working hard for you, a shoe tuber is going to be like, yeah, that's great. That's better than me just taking whatever ad that YouTube gives me. It could be for balls trimmer or whatever. Instead, it's geared for my audience and therefore maybe an ad that they're more likely to click. Therefore, I get paid more. So the dream was, say they have courted JD Sports, for example, as a big promotion for their sale. And Complex says to JD Sports, we will feature your ads for this promotion, not only on our own shows, but also this network of other sneaker YouTube shows as well, too. And JD Sports is great because someone who's watching a Tony D2 Wild video is more likely to click that than someone who's watching a YouTube about video games or, you know, tech devices or whatever. So the shoe tuber creates the content, owns the content, complex sets the ads and the ad rates, and then gives them a cut. Most of the people who are now publicly tweeting about this say it never actually happened. This was the dream, but these big promotions never actually happened. So maybe they were just skimming on all the smaller sales of ads the whole time. That part, I don't know. As I mentioned, this could be all because of the merger and they fired people and now they don't know how to pay people. I don't know, I'm not gonna make excuses for them. But in the bigger picture, there's a real changing of the media landscape going on. You see this in Hollywood, you see this in streaming services, you see this on online ads and everything. The ads market is changing with the economy. So maybe this is a strategic shift to focus ads on their own content, have that JD sports promotion on their own YouTube shows instead of on, you know, the Tony D2 wild YouTube show. So some questions I have, you know, the first one is why were these YouTubers never open about this partnership with Complex? I don't watch every single video, but I've literally never seen any of them talk about they are partners with them or anything like that. Maybe I missed it. Maybe not. But for the most part, it seems like people are finding out about this just now. But maybe they were not open about it because it's like Complex doesn't own the show. All they do is the ads. So I don't need to be open about it again. I can't talk for them, so I don't know. But I will say most of these YouTubers were making like nice guy content. 
focused on non-critical content. None of them were doing like media criticism or stuff like that. But again, everyone's free to make the type of content they want to. But what that does is it basically kind of buys their silence or buys their opinion. Because even if something came up where they wanted to be critical of Complex, they would bite their tongue because why would you bite the hand that feeds you? So that's why I say Complex kind of, you know, bought their silence, bought their opinion. But once the checks stop coming, you're not so silent and you got something to say. So for these guys, what's next? I don't know. They can harass them for the money. They'll eventually get the money. Maybe they eventually get their money and it's back to normal and back to making nice guy content. Maybe they want to get out of this deal to breach a contract since it does nothing for them anyways. Or it could be BuzzFeed just tells them all to fuck off and keeps it all for themselves now. All these YouTubers, they always look bored out there just going through the motions. Maybe they were doing that because they were big enough where they were being monetized thanks to the help of these complex deals. But if that safety net is gone, what's the content direction going to be for them? People will already shifting away to other stuff like uh, early pairs or videos on reselling or these consignment stores doing buyouts and the day-to-day -day of running a sneaker store. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with their content, where it will shake out. It doesn't seem like they were getting a lot of money from Complex for these ad sales, but it was definitely something. So, but that's what I say, if you take a chunk of that out, is it now even worth it for you to continue doing it? Especially if the passion is already gone. Where sneaker media themselves are going in the terms of the content they create, Right now, a lot of their content is, you know, recycling photos of interesting photographers from Instagram, for example, a lot of engagement farming stuff, but it's also a lot of copy pasting. If these sneakerheads breaks a story on the holiday 23 Jordan 11 drop, you got to copy paste it from these sneakerheads. Even me, I was the first to tweet about, say, the Zeta Kicks clawbacks or Nike's response to Cool Key being a serial copyist. They saw it, saw it from me, saw it, retweeted, had to react. That at least is, you know, a public court document, so they're not going to credit me like they would Z sneakerheads. But they take it, go copy-paste it. I talked about engagement farming, and that's like, you just can't have a big account not post 10, 12 times a day. You can't have just one post a day and then nothing. It's got to be constant, and it's got to be like every hour or every 30 minutes, whatever it is. So that's where engagement farming comes. That's where I talked about, you know, the the left or right type of tweets. You know, it's a photo of a Chicago one and a bread four and you're like left or right. Easy couple hundred likes, people are gonna like and reply and talk to you. And they do it because there's a quota of how many posts you have to have a day. And, but also there's an endorphin rush of those engagements and makes it look like you're active and you're doing something. Another thing I've seen too, especially on the written side are a lot of affiliate posts. I saw a post from GQ magazine, like the, these are the best new balance models. And it was all a list of current models with affiliate links. So the list is garbage because it's the best new balance models ever are not just the ones that are released out this year, but those are the ones you can get affiliate links for. So in a way it took a controversial topic and combined it with engagement farming. Another thing that's coming up soon, and I bet you will see a lot more of it, is the integration of AI and ChatGPT. And this will be a topic I'll dive into deeper in a future episode, but BuzzFeed has already been talking about this, how they will have ChatGPT generated quizzes. I mean, is it really hard for a ChatGPT algorithm to come up with left or right type of posts? Or say uh, an update on a lawsuit about Nike and Bape comes out. You 
feed it in the PDF of the court documents and it generates an article for you. Or, you know, say Nike leaks you a memo about retailer release procedures, you plug it into ChatGPT and it summarizes it for you. Do you even need a reporter to write that article? All the details are literally in the memo. They just need a paragraph written around it, some H2 or H3 headers on it, and then slap a giant flying ad over it so no one can read it. Done and done. You could even say, hey, ChatGPT, write this article in the tone of a fragile journalist with an ego. But, you know, I get it. This is not exactly a criticism on these type of sneaker media. It works for them. This is what's working right now. People want to see this flow of 10 or 12 posts a day from each of the sneaker accounts that they follow because that's how they get their sneaker news. It's not like how the blog days were. That's why I didn't use the word blog. I used the word like sneaker media because blog doesn't even properly summarize it. But I, I used the analogy of bubblegum versus chocolate in the last episode and I'll use it again. You know, bubblegum, something you chew up and spit out when the flavor is gone. And so you got to keep having more, even though it's all just empty calorie content. Versus chocolate, something that you can enjoy and savor and go back to. Something that made you think, something that was critical or thoughtful, whatever. People can enjoy both. Sometimes you want bubblegum, sometimes you want chocolate. Which one do you prefer at what time of the day? Other social media I want to talk about. First up, TikTok and Instagram Reels. For Instagram Reels and TikToks, if they're short and interesting or funny, I'm fine with it, especially the comedy ones. You know, I don't have the skill set to do TikToks and Instagram Reels. I don't know how sustainable it is for the people that do do it. How many skits can you do per day? Because the demands of that seem pretty crazy to me. Other ones I see, I see these floating sneakers and shit like that. Those are really just photos that have become Reels or Instagram because Instagram has de-emphasized photos for this kind of stuff. And then other times you see these shitty stuff on sneaker TikTok. These fake arguments, disingenuous arguments, people trying to get baited conversations going. All of it just engagement farming shit in disguise. Like there was this one about, you know, how white people have either ruined sneakers or have not ruined sneakers and everyone else is wrong. Whatever it was, it was a bunch of cringe bullshit, and I'd rather watch a bad comedy sketch than that. On Twitter, Twitter's my favorite place, so come to Twitter. We got it all. We got miserable people. We got engagement farmers. We got lots of yelling and nonsense and arguments about nothing. We got resellers. We got OG sneakerheads that look down on you. We got factions. We got disingenuous arguments. We got it all. But if you look carefully, you will see that there are actually a lot of people on Twitter that are not miserable, that are joking around and building community, taking photos of sneakers that they like, posting photos of sneakers that they're wearing, having real conversations with their friends. And when some disingenuous arguments bubble up, they're the ones not even engaging in that bullshit because they see it as bullshit and it's not even worth their time or effort. They just see it as obvious nonsense. These are the happy people on Twitter. So come join the conversation on Twitter. Find your tribe, but beware of the engagement farmers. So just to wrap it up, that I think is a good term is pick your tribe. Do you want to be a collector, a casual, a reseller, an influencer? Picking your tribe also depends on your own temperament. Are you the type of person who is, you know, the everything is terrible person? Then being angry online about some random bullshit is just the thing for you. Are you doing it for other reasons, fame and fortune, so the goal is to be an influencer? Go out there, make boring and bland nice guy content. If you want brands to notice you and maybe complex to not pay you, that's the way to go. 
Or you could do the opposite. I don't know, whatever you want. Good luck on your journey. Show me something good. Build a community around it, not a bunch of empty calorie bullshit. For everyone else, I just highly recommend enjoying sneakers and having fun. Here's the sneakers I like. Here's the sneakers I'm wearing today. Here's my circle of friends and my community. That could be a wide group. That could be a small group. Whatever it works for you. I don't, that's where I think I feel life fit in. I'm not in this for fame and fortune. I like sneakers. I like sneakers that make me happy. I like being around people that make me happy. Of course, fucking around on Twitter making jokes makes me happy. Really, the Twitter account and this podcast and just how I am in general is the aftermath of a period of grief in my life. It's a real moment where you have to ask yourself, who do I want to be and how do I want to be going forward? And this kind of stuff lets me have fun and lets me be creative. So that's my suggestion. Pick a sneaker that makes you happy. Pick a temperament that makes you happy. Pick a tribe, whether online, in person, that makes you happy. But you know what would make me happy is if you go fuck yourself. (laughs) 